continuing in our study in the book of Matthew. We pick up where we left off last week. By way of reminder, last week we concluded with a beautiful picture of a sovereign and drawing God calling the wise men to worship Jesus Christ. And the way our passage ended last week in chapter 2, verse 12, God warned the wise men to go home a different route. And in that simple statement that the wise men were warned, there is a foreshadowing that not all is well with the birth of this child king. Well, the magi, we saw, worship the baby. The Jewish religious leaders are completely apathetic. And as we'll see this morning, the king, Herod, well, he responds with simply outright hostility. The Jewish king rejects the true king, and Jesus is viewed as a threat to be dealt with. The truth is, for each and every single one of us, we must react to the incarnation, to the birth of this one in some way. Whether it's worship, whether it's apathy, or like Herod, outright hostility. And this morning in our sermon, we move from the joy of the worship of these Gentiles to the complete and total rejection by Herod. Think about the experience for Mary and for Joseph. What an overwhelming encouragement It would be to have these wise men who have traveled from afar to come and worship their son. But in the very act of the coming of the Magi, there was imminent danger. Have you ever had an experience like that? Where everything's great one day, and then you wake up to the next day. And it just seems like the bottom has completely fallen out. Despite the hostility that we'll see this morning, we're reminded that Christ is king and that he reigns victorious over every circumstance. And as we have the opportunity to look at the last half of Matthew chapter 2, I pray that you'll join me in prayer as we ask for God to speak to us. God, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the gift of your word by which we are warned and instructed We are taught to repent. We are taught to change our ways. We're taught to change our thinking. And this morning, may we rejoice that you indeed are king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story begins fairly quickly as we go through the uh, continuing storyline of the birth of Jesus as recorded by Matthew. And the very first thing that we see in verses 13 through 15 is that the child is Removed, he flies to Egypt, beginning in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had gone, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill 
what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Everything is happening at this point very quickly. We know that the wise men went to Jerusalem to inquire, where is this one who is born, the king of the Jews? And the religious leaders tell him accurately, you need to travel about six miles to Bethlehem because that's where the prophecy says this will happen. And so it could be that all of the things that are happening in this action-packed few verses all happened within the same night. That the very night when the Magi came and worshipped, how long did they stay? I don't know. Did they stay for a week to visit with Jesus and his family? Or did they travel many months, worship him, and then get back on their camels to head back to their hometown? Here's what we do know. Herod was very interested in knowing where this child was born and had asked the Magi to report back to him. Now, it is a six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. So how quickly do you think Herod was expecting a report back from the Magi? Certainly not a couple of days. He expected to hear something back quickly. After two days, certainly Herod would expect that the Magi would have brought word back to him. And in the midst of this, perhaps the very night that the Magi come to visit, it says that Joseph lays down to sleep and he has a restless evening. Did you see what it said? It said God warned him in a dream that Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So get up and go to Egypt. And what does it say? Verse 14, so Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. This was not a well-planned vacation. This was not uh, casually over a cup of coffee talking about, you know, I hear Egypt, the weather's pretty good there this time of year. Let's pack our bags and go. No, the implication is very much that that very night, not only did Joseph get awakened from his slumber by this dream, but he got out of bed and he obeyed the Lord immediately because the situation was dire. Now, there's a couple things about titles that I think are just very Uh, interesting in this passage. Herod, in the first half of chapter 2, is always referred to as King Herod. Chapter 2, verse 1, verse 3, verse 9. But interestingly, once the wise men come and they bring their gifts and they bow before Christ, for the remaining... uh, For the remaining scriptures where Herod is a character, he is never again referred to as king. He's referred to as Herod. It's almost as if Matthew's trying to signify that once the wise men come in worship, Herod, through that act, has been symbolically dethroned. Because the true king is here. Now it's interesting, if you remember this from last week, when Herod said, uh, hey, you go find the child... Herod never refers to Christ as the king. And so you have this claiming of titles between Herod and Jesus that they are battling back and forth. But there is an interesting title for Jesus that we see in this second half of chapter 2. 
You see, in chapter 1, when we were explaining Jesus' genealogy, we're told that his name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joshua, God is salvation, but he's also named Emmanuel, God with us. And in in this portion, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, Jesus is referred to by a new title. Not king, not savior, not Emmanuel, but the child. The child. Here is this one who will be the Messiah, but he's in a helpless form right now. He is acted upon by aggressors. He has to flee to save his life. Here is the one that will save many by his death, but the time for his death is not now. By calling him child, Matthew's focusing on his absolute fragility and the danger that he is in. It doesn't take much to snuff out the life of a child. I think God is teaching us some important things about the incarnation that yes, while Jesus was absolutely 100% God, he was God enfleshed as a baby. And so the result is that they flee. The Greek word, fuego, is from where we get the name fugitive. You think of your Savior, our King, as a refugee, as a fugitive who's living in exile in a foreign country? It's beautiful to see because we know that Jesus' family was not a family of tremendous means. So how do they become this jet-setting family traveling internationally? Well, it just so happens that right before they're supposed to flee to Egypt, what happens? That the wise men come bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And God causes them to come and worship at just the right time for them to have the resources to finance the fleeing that God has already appointed for, for to, happen, to happen in the life of Christ. The gifts finance this emergency trip. And it's, it's odd because there are so many ways that God could have protected. But in a very ordinary and unmiraculous fashion, God uses divine initiative to both preserve and protect the child. So they flee to Egypt, and we wonder why Egypt. Well, Egypt was a Roman province at the time. <clears throat> and it happened to be the residence of over one million Jews. As a matter of fact, the port city of Alexandria was reported to be one of the grandest libraries in the entire world. And as Bible translation found its uh, future, the Bible translation known as the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, was written by 70 Jewish scholars that happened to live in Egypt. So if they are going to be expatriates, they could be rather comfortable. They may have connections in this foreign country with people of their own kind who live there. It says that they got up in the middle of the night. It was somewhere between 75 and 100 miles to get to the Egyptian border. And I just have to imagine that when you get woken up and warned in such a fashion that you don't get to the border and then stop right there and look back and stick your tongue out. I know if it was my family that was in danger... I'm not stopping at the border. 
And many commentators believe that at a minimum, the family fled into the interior of Egypt at least another 100 miles. Trouble's coming. Small child, wife, very little means, but God provides when? Right at the right time for this to happen. We see a prophecy here that uh, what happens with Jesus' fleeing is to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. That's a quotation from the book of Hosea. Many of you are familiar with the book of Hosea. Hosea is the story of a faithful prophet of God who is married to an unfaithful prostitute. The marriage itself becomes an illustration of God's relationship with his unfaithful people. And Hosea, by his living um, analogy, his living parable, is reminding his peers in his faithfulness to his wife of how God was faithful to rescue his unfaithful people from Egypt. And so Hosea is certainly not a prophecy. Hosea happened hundreds of years after the Exodus. And he says, God is faithful to deliver his people. And he, he reflects back as he thinks through his own circumstances and said, God rescued uh, the, the children of Israel in Egypt. And God is causing me to live with an unfaithful wife in such a way to demonstrate very practically God's complete and total faithfulness. So when Matthew sees this, he doesn't think, oh, well, Hosea is practicing predictive prophecy in verse 15. He just says, there are some things happening here that are way beyond mere coincidence, that God has told them to flee to Egypt. And you know what? Hosea said this, and God's faithfulness in rescuing Hosea is a picture of God's faithfulness in rescuing his son that we might be rescued. It's a fulfillment of Scripture because it's a picture of the faithfulness of God. Well, the story changes from a family that is fleeing in verses 16 through 18 to a king, Herod, who rages. And when he figures out what is happening, he decides that he's been tricked. And because of that trickery, someone or someones must die. Look at verses 16 through 18. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refuses to be comforted because they were no more. Herod's used to being in control. And when these foreign magi come to him, he includes them in his plan. Well, I'm going to send you, I'm going to commission you, I'm going to deputize you to go find the child and then bring a report back to me. Well, after a few days, when they don't come out, Herod has discerned that his gambit is up. He's been discovered. And it says that he becomes very enraged. He loses control. His passions now control him. He is not in control of himself. And he is blinded by hatred. We get an idea for how 
boiling red hot this hatred is by watching what Herod does. And it's despicable. You see, Herod didn't consider that if the Magi didn't come back to report to him, they had figured out his plan. And if they had figured out his plan, who did they tell? Mary and Joseph. So Herod probably even knows that by the time he's figured out that he's been tricked, that Jesus and his family are long gone. But because he has been mocked, someone must die. And if he can't catch the bird that he wants, he'll catch the birds that he can. And in a most vile manner, if he couldn't deliberately kill the Messiah, he'll kill everyone in town that fits any of the description. He's diseased with a self-centeredness and a megalomaniacal passion. And he realizes that if Jesus is the king, then he's not anymore. And he's going to fight all that he can to retain the point of privilege, the, the pride and the power that comes with his position. And friends, it's not really a whole lot different for us, too. Because for every single one of us, every morning when our feet hit the ground, we too have to make a decision of whether we're going to be king or whether Jesus is going to be king. You know what? Not every morning do we make a wise decision. Have you had an episode this week where you know that you've put the crown on your own head? I hope that when you come to worship, that God grants you the grace of repenting. And doing now what the Bible says we will do in the future, where we take the crown off of our own head, and we lay it at the feet of the one true king. Commentators get kind of fanciful. One uh, early church father said that there were 144,000 babies that were slain in Bethlehem. The problem is that Bethlehem was not a town of more than a couple thousand people at most. And so somewhere probably between 20 and 50 young boys were killed on that fateful night. And again, in concluding this passage that we're looking at, uh, this, a couple of verses, 16 through 18, Matthew, again, thinks back to something that has happened in Old Testament history that reminds him of the tragedy of this circumstance. He quotes a scripture from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 25. And he talks about Rachel weeping for her children. Well, if you know anything about the story of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a prophet during the exile. God's people had again been unfaithful. And the punishment for their unfaithfulness was deportation to Babylon. Now Rachel, one of the wives of the patriarchs, had lived hundreds of years before. But it just so happens that as the Babylonians were gathering the Jewish people and preparing them for exile, that at the very northernmost edge of the Jewish country was a town called Ramah, which happens to be very close to the burial ground where Rachel was buried. 
And what they're saying here is that as uh, Rachel wept for her children in previous history, the deportation, their destruction here, uh, pictures Rachel as the perennial Hebrew mother who didn't just weep for their original misfortunes, but is weeping again as her children are deported to a foreign country. And because of the slaughter that happens here in Bethlehem, Rachel is depicted as weeping not just at their deportation, but weeping at the tragedy of self-willed men who will not bow their knee to Christ the King. The difference here is it's not the people who are exiled. Jesus is now the one who is exiled. Not the nation of people, but the one who is to be the Savior flees to a foreign country. And it is the ones who remain behind who are destroyed. And I love this because in Jeremiah, we see an antidote to Rachel's weeping. In the midst of the deportation, as the Jewish people are being uh, carted off in exile, Rachel is weeping for her children. And Jeremiah 31 concludes with one of the... uh, most brilliant passages of Scripture in verses 31 through 34. God says in response to this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a faithful husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man is his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. I think it's terribly interesting that Matthew remembers this passage. That Christ, who is exiled to this land, fleeing from the murderous rage of Herod, is the one who later in this gospel, Matthew 26, verse 28, will say this. Matthew will record this. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from it all of you. For this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Even through the disaster of Herod slaughtering these babies, even in the mind-blowing fugitiveness of the Son of God fleeing from a mere man, God is preparing the one who would pour out his blood to right all of the world's wrongs, to fix all of the broken political systems, to uh, destroy all of the personal ambition, every sin that we can think of. Jesus' blood, this one who is on on the run, will pour out his blood for the forgiveness of many. The third picture that we see in Matthew chapter 2 is the child returning to settle in Nazareth. 
in verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph, again, he got up, he took the child and his mother, and he came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left the regions of Galilee. And he came and he lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, had flown into exile in Egypt. And he returns to the promised land to settle into obscurity. Nazareth? You remember the story when he began to call his disciples. Nazareth, is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? Surely the Jewish king would not come from Nazareth. I'm trying to think about how we would put that into a Rock Hill context. The money? Jesus is coming from the money? No way that anyone of any reputation could come from a bar with that kind of seedy reputation. And he lives there? His parents are the owner? No way. And in some ways, there's no specific prophet that says that Jesus will be a Nazarene. In verse 23, it says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, plural. Well, there's not one prophet that says it. But there are many prophets who say that Jesus will be despised, that he will be considered of lowly origin. And Matthew sees in their settling in Nazareth such a humble, backwards, and ill-spoken of territory that this is absolutely the place that the Savior should come from. This is maybe not a literal fulfillment of Scripture, but the despised one coming from a despised town And it works. Jesus will always come at you from an unexpected location. When you least expect it, where you least expect it from. And we see that Jesus, for the remainder of his life, we won't hear another word for the next 30 plus years. According to Matthew, this is the sum total of his childhood. Covered in these two brief chapters. We hear about his genealogy. Uh, We hear about um, the visit of the Magi. We hear about the flight to Egypt. And then the story closes on Jesus' birth. But there are a couple things that we see here that are worthy of our reflection as we think about the message, the abiding and continuing message for us today. And very simply, I think what Matthew is trying to communicate to us is that Jesus is Everything. Jesus is everything. And he substantiates that in three very simple ways. The first way that he says this is that Jesus is true to Scripture. He's true to Scripture. All throughout uh, chapter 2, there are these fulfillment quotations of the Old Testament. When the wise men come in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, asking, where is he who will be 
born the king of the Jews. They say, oh, well, we know. Because Micah 5.2 says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where the ruler, that's where the shepherd will come from. And he says, this is what has been written by the prophet. In chapter 2, verse 15, this prophecy from Hosea that God will call his son out of Egypt as he called Israel out of Egypt before. He is now calling his son now. Chapter 2, verse 17, a quotation from Jeremiah 31 about Rachel weeping in the promise of a new covenant. And in chapter 2, verse 23, where we're told that the, the, the Lord will be a despised one, and as such, he fulfills Scripture by settling in a place like Nazareth. Jesus is the one to fulfill every expectation in the Old Testament. He has fulfilled them. He has uh, accomplished what the prophecies have spoken about. And when you have conversations with people about the truthfulness of who Christ is, you don't simply have to talk about your experience. Well, he lives because I say he lives. That's not the best apologetic. That's not going to convince a lot of people. But there are all kinds of prophecies and promises found in this word that to the objective and fair hearer can be mightily convincing. That Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of the scriptures. But that's not all that we see. You see, we already talked about this, how Jesus is referred to as the child and how Herod is never again in chapter 2 referred to as the king. There's a great contrast that is set up because Jesus is the true king. King Jesus is contrasted with King Herod. When you think about Herod, Herod was a man who was known for his selfishness and his self-indulgence. But Jesus as king would be known for his self-denying and his self-sacrificing. Herod, ultimately, in trying to destroy the Messiah, yielded to Satan and ended up being vanquished, losing his throne. But Jesus yielded to God and ended up vanquishing Satan himself. Herod is a destroyer and proves it by his murder of these children. But Jesus, what kind of king is he? He's a savior. Herod is cruel, even to poor and helpless babies. Jesus is kind, especially to children. You see, Herod wants it all, and he loses it all. Jesus owns it all, and he ends up controlling all. Which king do you want to serve? Which king do you want to live under? And it may not be that this morning you think about um, bowing before another king, but there's another substitute that we all make that's just as bad as any despot that we may seek to crown. And that is the king of you. The Bible's very clear that the commitment to being a Christian is not simply about making a decision once and for all, but it is about choosing every day which pathway you're going to walk. If you've prayed a prayer and you've put the crown on your own head every day since you prayed that prayer, you have no basis to be assured of your salvation. Because a Christian is someone who doesn't just pray a prayer, but then walks 
putting the crown at Jesus' feet every day. And the true test of our trust in Christ is not what prayer we prayed, but which pathway we walk. The prayer is important. But the pathway you walk is important as well. The last contrast, and one that I think is just rife with meaning, is not only that Jesus is true to Scripture, not only that Jesus is the true King, but that Jesus is the true Israel. You'll remember in Genesis, or I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 1, when it talks about the Genesis, the beginning, it's the only other word that that word genesios is used besides the book of Genesis. And there are many commentators who believe that what Matthew is trying to communicate is here in the middle of history, there is a new beginning. That Jesus is a new Genesis in the middle of all of these things that are happening. But when we get to Matthew chapter 2, we see that not only is Jesus a new Genesis, not only is he a new beginning, a new plan, a new way come to fulfillment, but Jesus is the new Exodus. The Exodus event created the Old Testament people of God. And so Matthew is saying that in Jesus, not only do we have a son of David and a son of Abraham, but a new Israel. There's some interesting parallels. When Moses, the great leader of the Jewish people, was born, he was born under less than desirable circumstances. You remember the story? All of the Hebrew children were to be, all the the Hebrew males were to be killed. And his mother hid him in a basket and put him into the river to hide among the bulrushes. Jesus, after he was born, was sought to be killed as well. Once Moses uh, rises to the task of leading his people, immediately upon getting them out of the nation of Egypt, what happens to the Old Testament people of God? They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, upon uh, inaugurating his ministry, does what? Spends 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. Israel was called God's son. Jesus is God's son. The history of the patriarchs ends in Egypt. The history of the gospel begins in Egypt. Where Israel had been unfruitful and disobedient, Jesus will be fruitful. And the proof of that fruit is that we are here today. That the very original promise to Abraham, that he would call people from every tribe and tongue and nation, is being fulfilled even here today. In a very deliberate and methodical fashion, Matthew is having Jesus physically retrace the route that his ancestors had tread many years before where Israel had been disobedient and ineffective, Jesus comes to be perfectly obedient and to open up a way to God. Now, Jesus being the true Israel doesn't mean that there is no plan for racial Israel. But it does mean that that God's people's relationship with him will be determined by a relationship and not by race. 
but by grace, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So as the true Israel, Jesus will do a couple things. Whereas Moses delivered from a political nation, Jesus is the new Moses, will deliver us from our slavery to sin. Whereas Joshua marched people into the promised land, Jesus as the new Joshua will be our savior by the spilling of his blood and he'll lead us into the promised land of a new covenant. As the new David, Jesus will be the true and forever king, promising eternal life to all who trust in him. And praise God that he doesn't give us a finite, infallible, another fallible human leader, but the leader that he actually gives to us is Emmanuel, God with us. And if there's anything that is an encouragement to me here this morning, as the true Israel, what we see Jesus do is we see him taste the experience of all of his brothers. If they had been exiled to Egypt, well, guess what? He's exiled to Egypt as well. He tastes our entire experience. He physically takes our journey. He goes our way. He shares our problems. And so, friends, this day, you don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with what you're going through. You have a high priest that has lived authentic, true human experience and he knows your weaknesses. And he says, despite that, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I know what your experience is. I know your imperfections and your blemishes. And I promise that he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Rather, I will bring you in and I will take your sin. That's something no Jewish prophet, no Jewish priest, or no Jewish king could ever do. But Jesus, as the fulfillment of Scripture, as the one and only true king, as the new and true Israel, promises to do those very things for all who will call upon the name of the Lord. Now, for you here today, there may be some among you who have never, in any way that you're aware of, have called upon the name of the Lord. It's not magical. It's not, uh, it's not weird. It's simply confessing that you're tired of living with you as king, and you'd love for God to be the king of your life. You'd love to yield control of your life to him. That can happen. But for those of you who have already made the commitment to walk with Jesus as king. It doesn't mean that the pathway that we walk is easy. As a matter of fact, if you could do it in your own power, you wouldn't need a savior. But today, if you have gotten off the path, would you pray that God would grant you the humility of spirit to lay your crown down today? You will make bad decisions every day of your life. You will not do what God would do with almost every decision that you may make. 
God is a gracious king who longs to remove our burdens. But he will not take anything that is not freely offered to him. So today, will you trust him? Pray with me, please. God, as we see Matthew's message here today, that you are a faithful God, that despite the madness of man, you reign eternal. That as God, you experienced all of the depth and depravity of our experience. Even as God in the flesh, for a man to desire to kill this one who would save. We thank you that you have indeed given us a one who has experienced the very same things that we have. And God, that you love us in spite of our sin. That you love us in spite of our rejection of your kingship. That you give to us the grace of repentance. That today might be a day where we no longer labor under our own futile aspirations, but gladly submit to the king of the universe, the king of creation, that we might submit to the king of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.